Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Montgomery, Associate Professor of Biodiversity and Sustainability at the University of Oxford, Senior Research Fellow in the Lady Margaret Hall College, and Senior Researcher in the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit. He's here to talk about his recent bioscience article, Integrating Social Justice into Higher Education Conservation Science. It was an absolutely great discussion. I learned quite a bit. So with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. All right, uh, Dr. Montgomery, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, James. Thanks so much for the time. Okay, so to get us started, I was thinking we might talk a little bit about, you know, the field of conservation and some of the ways that, um, you know, conservation can occasionally provide challenges or, you know, uh, be difficult for those who actually live in these biodiverse areas. What's the what's the tradition been like in those types of spaces? It's a very interesting question because conservation thinking is thousands of years old. But conservation biology as an ind independent discipline is only as old as myself. So it was born at a conference in uh, Southern California in 1978. And that was the first time that colleagues came together to articulate how conservation biology was different from companion disciplines such as genetics or um, theology or uh, biology. And they, they wanted to articulate a doctrine by which conservation biology was different. One of the ways in which they described it as being different is that it was confronting a crisis. And this is where the notion for a crisis-based discipline comes from, of biodiversity loss. And there were two founding goals of the conservation biology as an independent discipline. The first goal was to conduct research necessary to understand the mechanisms associated with biodiversity loss. And the second goal was to translate that information into policy formation on the ground decision-making that could demonstrably conserve biodiversity. However, in present day, it's been very difficult for conservation scientists to achieve those two founding goals. About 70% of conservation scientists are academics that are incentivized toward fundamental research and peer-reviewed publications. So we've been remarkably successful in the first goal of understanding the mechanisms associated with biodiversity loss and publishing on it. But we've really struggled with the second goal, and that's exemplified by the fact that we've lost 60% of terrestrial biodiversity since uh, conservation biology was founded as a, as a discipline. Fast forward to the present, what that means is that we have intensive measures that are implemented to try and protect biodiversity. Some of the most biodiverse rich regions in the world are in the global south. And it's in the global south where we often have these pretty harsh dichotomies between human well-being and biodiversity protection. And that's really the reason why uh, biodiversity loss and conservation thinking uh, can be highly contentious issues that can be damaging for local people. Okay, and I was hoping we could talk just a little bit about poaching, um, because I think, you know, in many people's minds, and certainly in mine at one point, you know, when you thought about poaching, the idea would be of, for instance, you know, an elephant who's being killed and the ivory is being harvested for sale by someone who's, you know, really making some money on this operation. Um, but I think, you know, the reality of the situation is a lot more nuanced than that. And I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what sorts of actual violations are we talking about in these refuge areas? Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, another strand of research in my program actually looks at the different types of poaching and the motivations toward, toward poaching. And um, I delineated that there are three macro types. Uh, the first type is what's called trophy poaching. And you'll recognize that terminology because it's inherently similar to trophy hunting in that there are various characteristics of an animal that an individual is seeking to have by harvesting those, those features. A, a primary one is the is the one that you just mentioned in elephants, which is ivory. And uh, ivory, of course, can be converted into trinkets, which are sold the world over. 
The second form is medicative poaching, and that's actually where you're poaching animals specifically for purported curative or uh, medicinal benefits derived from various animal parts, um, such as ivory horn, uh, sorry, a rhino horn in that case, which oftentimes has a, an appetite in markets in Southeast Asia. And then the third form of poaching is consumptive poaching, where the motivations are purely for uh, human consumption. Uh, there's oftentimes low economic benefit associated with that form of poaching, and a subform within consumptive poaching is what's called subsistence poaching, where uh, all or a majority of the animals that are harvested are consumed locally within the poacher's family uh, or in their community, i.e. not sold for economic benefit. It's really important for uh, the public to understand those differences because it creates an environment in which poaching is not one big problem. Uh, but actually it's a it's a diversity of different problems of uh, which we have some very heinous forms in trophy and medicative poaching but subsistence poaching oftentimes is done by local people uh, that are in need of livelihood and improvement options that are not available and are trying to find ways in, in, to survive and is the problem that you know people who are doing this subsistence poaching um, you know, are running afoul of, you know, conservation biology, crisis discipline driven, you know, um, rules and, and laws that are potentially, you know, uh, incredibly punitive. Yes. In fact, we're, we're studying these dynamics as well to look at spatial variation in punitive practices implemented to curb uh, harvest of illegal harvest of animals the world over. And we are finding that those penalties tend to be much harsher in the global south for a number of different reasons. Again, this is where a lot of the global conservation efforts are concentrated so as to try to stem the tide of what people are referring to as the sixth mass extinction event and the first that has been principally accelerated by human action. So this is a, a very, very important issue, but one where uh, black and white uh, doesn't have a lot to do with it because everything is in the gray tones in between. There's uh, huge layers of complexity associated with the types of criminal penalties that would be appropriate uh, for these types of things. And oftentimes these penalties exist or the illegality of the activity uh, exists because there are not legitimate permitting practices in place that facilitate an opportunity for local people to sustainably harvest wild animal populations. If we look at the global north, and particularly if we look in North America, and most especially if we look at the United States as an example, we have state-by-state -state policies for the number of tags that can be sold and the way in which a, a sustainable harvest ought to occur, and those are done in coordinated fashion with the state agency. Um, those types of, of programs don't exist all over the world, and in places where they don't exist or there's not a permitting process that facilitates a fair and transparent take of wildlife, then you can have illegal behavior occurs. But um, the formal action of the hunting itself is, is not terribly dissimilar between, uh, say, Michigan and, and Uganda, where you have species that are about the same size that are targeted by hunters. It just happens that one is, is, uh, is highly illegal and the other is, is completely above board. Okay. So essentially, to, to, to put it very simply, um, you know, we have a degree of moral complexity here that is greater than, you know, what we might, you know, kind of as lay people, um, speaking for myself, understand as, you know, conservation biology is good and the people who would commit incursions against those goals are bad or something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it can be exemplified in a really simplistic statement, which is what is the difference between a game species and bushmeat? And uh, walking through that, it's it's really a piece of paper that legitimizes the take of an individual animal. We have that in the sake of the United States with what we call game species. Game species because people are afforded the opportunity if they so choose to go out and hunt them. But we don't have those same programs in, in, in different parts of the world like Sub-Saharan Africa. And where we don't have those programs, oftentimes we vilify people as being poachers. And that creates some some very complex narratives. Okay, and I'd like to uh, jump in and talk about you know the course in a moment. But before we do that, you know, can we talk a little bit about the way that conservation biology you know might respond to uh, you know these contentious issues and and kind of um, moral complexities? You know, is is the answer the you know the human heritage centered conservation? Um, you know, what ways can science sort of alter its approach to create a more equitable outcome? It's a really vital question and one which is associated with incredibly important social justice movements today. Um, My awakening actually on this journey started when I was 20 years old and I was uh, fortunate enough as an undergraduate to uh, be able to study chimpanzee ecology in Gombe National Park working under the direction of Jane Goodall and Dr. Ann Pusey who directed the the Jane Goodall Center uh, for Primate Studies at the University of Minnesota. And so as a 20-year-old kid growing up in the Midwestern part of the United States in blue-collar Cleveland, Ohio, I had very little idea of what I was doing. I brought virtually nothing to the table. I was more or less a walking liability. And what I found was that um, there was a deferential practice in place where despite my naivete, researchers that, uh, Tanzanian researchers that had been working in the system for, for 20 years were asking me for direction about what we should do. And that was a real wake-up call for me in terms of the prevailing power structures that exist and the types of complexities that are inherent to the way in which conservation practice has historically been implemented. These bring into into play uh, concepts such as parachute science of Western researchers that um, find themselves working in different parts of the world, advising state and local government on what their conservation policies should be, and then leaving and going back to the states. And Where's the sustainability of those conservation activities over time? Where's the professional development pathways for local people to become the conservation leaders on behalf of the animals in their country? So that's where the the origin story of the human heritage center conservation framework comes from, in that we developed a set of 10 tenants that we wanted to um, describe and unpack to facilitate an opportunity for conservation projects to have even greater benefits to uplifting local people in conservation and facilitating opportunities for local people to ascend to be the leaders of conservation projects moving forward. Okay, so you've you know you have this set of principles that include things like you know using local languages, um, you know, in the conduct of research and things like that, so that you know people are able to participate. Let's talk a little bit now about um, the course, the intervention that's described in this article. What kinds of things uh, did it convey to students, and you know what kinds of things were you measuring in terms of outcomes that are described in this article? Yeah, so the this idea began in 2015 when I smartly recruited. Uh, Tutilo Madumba to come and do a PhD under my direction at Michigan State University. So in 2014, I was fortunate enough to be hired at a fantastic institution in Michigan State. And my philosophy for growing my laboratory was to recruit particularly special students from global South countries so that they could be trained to the PhD level. 
and run these projects moving forward. So uh, Tutilo came from Uganda. I had never worked in Uganda before. I had worked in East Africa quite a lot, but never in Uganda. Um, but I, I knew him uh, not only by my own impression, but those of my colleagues, and they said he was just outstanding. So recruited him and Tutilo brought with him a project uh, that together we grew out to be what's called the Snares to Wearers Initiative, which is uh, an initiative that focuses on repurposing wire snares that are typically used in, in subsistence poaching and in the hands of local people for which we provide uh, artistic training, they sculpt these pieces, uh, these, these wires into uh, sculptures of wildlife that are particularly vulnerable uh, to, uh, to being caught in the, in the snares. And, um, then we generate revenue from the sale of those products globally, and they come in sizes that could fit on your desk to those that uh, are life-size and fit in museums. And the sale of the, the revenue that we generate from that initiative goes back into the rural communities and supports that uh, professional development pathways that we described via the Human Heritage Centered Conservation Framework. So we had that initiative running. And then the question became, how can we empower undergraduate students at Michigan State University to be participants in this intervention? And in terms of, uh, we were very interested to determine whether or not uh, they had preconceived notions about how conservation functions and focus specifically on their viewpoint versus these dualities of human well-being and biodiversity conservation. And we wanted to implement a pre and post course survey in which case we evaluated their impressions at the start of the course and at the end and compared the difference. Because we believed that students probably did have an aptitude and understanding for the vital role of social justice in conservation, but that they weren't particularly aware of that at, at the present time because of the, um, of the very uh, potent messages that, uh, that broadcast what conservation is and how it functions. Okay, and just as an aside, um, why undergraduates instead of, say, graduate students? Because we actually wanted to position uh, graduate students as co-teachers within the framework. So Tutilo was a formal co-instructor. Um, we also knew that we wanted to run the course multiple times, and we wanted to have situations in which students that participated in previous courses could then become the trainers of the students participating in the next course. The, and the other reason for that, James, to be to be quite clear, was that we believe greatly in the collective power of students that are undergraduates at present, because we believe that they have a massive opportunity to productively reshape uh, the future of conservation and sustainability. Okay, that makes sense. And so um, you begin with a pre-course survey. Um, what kinds of things are you asking them? Yeah, so we were very interested. We wanted to, in the pre-course survey, to set up an opportunity for them to digest uh, a contentious issue. So the contentious issue that we actually selected was that which is exemplified broadly by what's referred to as human-wildlife conflict, in which you have two actors in a system. You have humans and you have wildlife. They interact in some way. And if there's a negative outcome for one or both parties, then that exemplifies conflict. And it's very challenging to fix that type of conflict um, because there's a variety of different forms with a variety of different taxonomic orders of species involved and highly variable human responses globally. So it's, a, it's an intractable and difficult issue to solve. We presented them with various questions, often on a Likert scale, from strongly agree to strongly disagree. 
in which we asked them how they would respond to a particular prompt. And these prompts were things like, who's responsible for paying the costs of human-wildlife conflict? Uh, who should value conservation? Who should pay for conservation where we have it? So we walked them through various scenarios and then they developed their responses. And that was done on the first day of class before any instruction began. We were just interested to know what, how they felt about these particular issues at that time. Okay, and so then um, what kind of responses did you get? Well, the interesting thing is, is the responses that we got, uh, the majority of the students were on the shifting to the spectrum of prioritizing biodiversity conservation. Right. Um, and so they were clearly prioritizing um, the values of biodiversity conservation and almost a bordering on a sort of conserve at all cost mentality, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the way in which we have to implement these practices. We want to make sure that the world has these animals in it moving forward. Okay, and now let's talk a little bit about um, you know what they did in the course. What were their experiences like, um, and you know what kind of things did they do? What kinds of things did they learn? How was it set up? So it, it was expressed across a sixteen-week uh, academic semester, and the first two weeks were what we called a burn-in period. So we had the students for two periods per week, uh, two two class periods per week for about three hours of pop. So it was, it was an intensive period of time. And the students remarked that they had never had a class that went where the class periods went so quickly, which uh, was indicative in my mind of their level of engagement in the content that we were providing. In the first two weeks, we wanted them to read a text, actually, which was written a few years ago by one of the co-authors, Dr. Mordecai Ogata, and it's called The Big Conservation Lie, which deals specifically with some of these contentious conservation issues that have happened in East Africa. And this was a massive wake-up call for the students because they were never familiar with these types of stories, the indicative of the things that can happen in conservation when you have a conserve-at-all-cost mentality. And it actually proved to be a very difficult period for the students because they were almost grieving for what they thought they knew about certain aspects of conservation without ever being privy to some of the, the more darker underbelly of conservation. And so they, they admittedly really, really struggled with that period. The two weeks after that, we focused on an orientation to the Snares to Wares initiative, presented the 10 tenets of the human heritage-centered conservation framework, and walked them through why we created this initiative, what it's striving to accomplish. From that point forward, they were divided into working teams, highly interdisciplinary, highly varied and diverse working teams of student groups that then got to determine exactly how they wanted to structure various contributions to help grow the Snares to Wares initiative operating in rural communities. And for this, we used a series of distance learning, experiential learning tools and techniques to actually enable these students to have a global impact without ever leaving campus. That was a very interesting back and forth period because the students were implementing projects that they had developed independently and that were supported by the instructors that were in the environment, but they felt that they had autonomy the other thing that registered with them is that they felt the gravitas and the weight of it because they knew that if they got it wrong, it was consequential. So if they actually made mistakes in their work, it directly impacted local people working in, in places like Uganda. So that, that created an, an interesting depth to the assessment and the uh, coordinated the, the collective energy of the students in really combustible ways. I've never been privy to student groups that have had so much positive energy 
and so much empowerment to recognize that they could actually really make a tangible impact while they were undergraduates at a large, you know, Midwestern institution. And what sort of contributions were they able to make from that sort of, you know, remote distance learning type setting? I think, you know, one of the things that um, I find really interesting about, you know, this program is that it is available to students who do not have the, you know, wealth and privilege that would normally be necessary in order to go over to Uganda and participate, you know, there. Um, You know, what kinds of things were they able to do, um, you know, in this sort of, you know, distance setting? Truly amazing things. So um, there were teams of students that focused on marketing and storytelling. There were teams of students that focused on uh, supply chain dynamics in terms of how to create a larger market for the sale of snare goods in the global north. There were teams of students that focused on uh, impact assessment of how can you quantify the impacts of conservation initiatives in new and novel ways and communicate that information back to the user community. Um, To give you an example of one of the particularly special contributions that the students had, we were lucky enough uh, uh, to develop a partnership with the Detroit Zoological Society, um, which is quite close to Michigan State University, and a unique zoo globally because they actually have an art museum, which is directly in the center of the zoo, which demonstrates their appreciation for both science and art. They commissioned a life-size representation of an actual lion that used to live in the study population in which we work in Murchison Falls National Park, which was called Butcher Man. The lion was called Butcher Man because when he ascended to the alpha male position, he was caught in a wire snare around his lower left leg, and it had to be amputated by Uganda Wildlife Authority in the field. A crippling injury and one which the uh, authority was convinced he would not uh, survive. But not only did he survive, he thrived. And he got up from that injury and was able to maintain his position as alpha male of the Delta Pride for a further three years on three legs. So this is really where uh, an animal moves from ecology to mythology. The Detroit Zoo was quite taken with that particular narrative. They commissioned a life-size representation of Butcher Man with three cubs, all made out of wire snares. And we said, well, that type of commission would be quite challenging um, because it would involve shipping boxes of wire snares from Murchison Falls National Park to Detroit. Uh, That's quite expensive. And they said, no, this piece must be authentic. It has to be made with the wire snares from that location. I said, well, the other thing it would force us to do is we would have to bring over two of our snare wire artisans to Detroit to build it. That was where the students really kicked into gear because the local community in which we collaborate with in, in Uganda is called Pakwatch. It's a small community on the western edge of Murchison Falls National Park, which is exactly where the Nile River starts and trickles down from the mountains, cuts the national park in two and flows all the way to Egypt. And right at that first bend is this community of Pakwatch, um, comprised of hardworking local people and unfortunately many people that find themselves uh, becoming poachers. So that was where we positioned our intervention. Now, because of the abject poverty that exists in these communities, most people have never traveled widely. Uh, Some people have never left Pockwatch itself. And yet two snare wire artisans, uh, we were sourcing visas and passports and travel arrangements to bring them over to the United States uh, to live and work in tandem with the students across a, a three month period and build out this uh, this life-size rendering of Butcher Man, and the students coordinated all aspects of that process. 
They also coordinated all aspects of the reveal of the, the piece uh, at the Detroit Zoo in collaboration with Detroit Zoo staff. So we had Detroit Zoo staff that were working in our educational spaces at Michigan State University and students that were traveling to Detroit to figure out how best to communicate the authenticity and the storytelling of the messages of this Nearest to Wares initiative to the Detroit public. So that's a, a modest example of, of hugely important contributions that the students were able to make across the time working uh, in this class. That's exciting. And I would only protest that that doesn't sound like a modest contribution at all. That's that's very, very <laughs> cool. Um, so we'll talk in a moment about, you know, the um, effects that, you know, these experiences had on the students. But I was hoping we could jump in just for a moment and talk about, um, you know, the effects on the local community. Um, you know, what kinds of, you know, responses do you get from, um, you know, the people who are actually there on the ground and, you know, they're 365 days a year? So we started with uh, five artisans in 2015. And thanks to the stewardship of Dr. Tutilla Madumba, uh, thanks to the stewardship of Sophia Jingo, Dr. Herbert Kosozi, all of these individuals that work in, in tandem to implement this Nares to Wares project, we've grown to over 500 artisans that make a living from this Nares to Wares initiative. It has helped them in so many tangible and intangible ways. Um, Charles Settler was one of the snare wire artisans that came over to Detroit. And with the revenue that he earned from working uh, to do this commission, and by the way, anybody who visits Detroit Zoo can go in and see Butcherman and his cubs anytime that they want as they're on permanent display within the art museum at Detroit Zoo. Charles was able to take that revenue back to Pockwatch, and he opened a secondary companion business to diversify his income and ensure that even in, in times of low economic productivity in the landscape, he was providing for his family. Um, that isn't something that we were actually able to predict would occur. The other thing that had occurred is via the professional development pathways that are inherent to the structuring of this human heritage-centered conservation project, uh, artisans within the Snares to Wares initiative recognize that they can ascend to positions of leadership if they so choose. And via that process, they have taken huge amounts of pride in their work and that has uh, changed the way in which they're viewed in society. So typically subsistence poachers uh, have all the same sort of uh, characterizations as do um, other people in different parts of the world involved in illegal activities. And it's unfortunate because oftentimes they're completely incorrect in, in terms of those characterizations. And in one case, uh, one of our snare wire artisans was actually able to run for local office and be elected by his community into a position of political power to be caretaking for his community in all sorts of different ways. Again, we wouldn't have been able to predict that type of professional development that had occurred, um, but it's just an indication of sustainability and conservation projects that are structured in this way can have a number of uh, of indirect benefits that are absolutely profound for local people. Okay, so and this really sounds like it's a way of creating a you know win-win um, scenario in which you know you're cutting down on the amount of poaching you have in the area, whereas and you're also able to you know um, provide significant assistance uh, to the people who you know are actually there. I think a really important point here, James, is that people don't grow up in rural communities aspiring to be subsistence poachers. It's something that happens by circumstance. Right. And when you look at the materials that are used in the poaching trade, they're the most rudimentary that are available. They're wires that live inside of radial vehicle tires, which when they blow out on the roadside of the United States, somebody comes and cleans them up. Well, in Africa, that doesn't often happen. 
And so disused large vehicle truck tires litter the roads of every developing nation. And if you don't have alternative ways of capturing protein or subsisting, then you might take those home and burn them on a pile, revealing the wires within, take those wires into a national park, lay them down along game trails in the hopes that you get a Ugandan cob or a hartebeest that you can take home and feed your family. So the way that we looked at it is that the only reason why wires are used is because they're freely available. So if via the Snares to Wires initiative, we can change the value of a wire from something to nothing, then we can alter the tendency for people to participate in, in snare poaching. So that's our that's our goal with the, snare, the Snares to Wires initiative. Okay. And, and I should ask at some point, uh, you know, are these products available for sale in a place where our listeners might be able to you know, kind of have a look? Yeah, so it's been an interesting couple of years, of course, for everybody with the pandemic. And in the midst of the pandemic, I decided to move abroad and take a, a professorship at at the University of Oxford and I'm getting my feet underneath me and, and getting settled. Um, absolutely, people can purchase these products. We are uh, redeveloping our international distribution pathways because of my move to England. And so we used to have a, a website where we could direct people with a drop-down interface, add to cart, and they could purchase the wire snares. We're trying to rebuild that uh, right now. And so our listeners will have to be slightly patient, uh, but they're most welcome to reach out to any of the co-authors on this particular paper. Uh, and we will direct them to, to, the, uh, to the tool that we have been building to, to allow them to purchase. No, that's great. Um, so let's chat now about uh, the effects that this had on the students, because obviously a major objective here was, um, you know, kind of ensuring that you know students had a, a more complete understanding of, you know, um, conservation biology and its role and, and you know, its potential as well. Um, what kinds of things did you see on the post survey? Well, one of the things that we were really concerned about is what's common in these types of courses is that you can get something which is called euphoria bias. So students are so taken with these amazing experiences of helping rural community members and launching a museum exhibit that they can just be uniformly positive. So along the way, we also implemented a second instrument, which was a reflection document, which at various intervals associated with the burn-in period and the orientation to the Snares to Wares initiative and several of the key performance in the index periods that we had for producing various pieces of information, we wanted to gauge student perspectives on how they were feeling. Then we did a, thema a thematic coding analysis of the frames that were featured in those documents. And by that process, we realized that this was not a uniformly positive experience for the students. In fact, they experienced uh, quite a bit of discomfort, not only with the ethical dimensions associated with the information that they were getting from conservation biology and the important and integral social justice components, but also from the speed with which the course was going, again, reflected, re reflected in student passion, and furthermore, associated with how challenging it was to develop the pieces of information uh, associated with the vision that they had put down on paper. So the, they're working in, in teams of interdisciplinary students. There were a dozen different uh, academic uh, majors represented in the course, students that look in the world in, in very different ways. And working cohesively as a team was, was not easy for them. However, when we corrected for that euphoria bias, what we found was that students on, on over a third of the questions that we asked in the pre and post course survey had a significant different response in their perspectives. And these are some important ones. Who should pay for the costs of conservation? At the start of the course, 
they were saying that um, local people ought to be quite responsible for those costs. And at the end of the cost, at the end of the course, they were reconciling with the fact that the local people shouldn't solely be burdened with the costs that come from living adjacent to biodiverse rich regions where you can have all sorts of negative impacts that, that wildlife uh, endure. Um, another one was, should local people be tolerant of conflict? At the start of the course, that was highly yes, they should be tolerant of, of conflict. Almost again on this black and white binary issue of local people shouldn't harm wildlife. And at the end of the course, students were understanding that it's actually much more nuanced than that. It's not that cut and dry. There's all sorts of contextual information that might change the way in which people understandably would defend against their property. I mean, in the United States, for instance, we intentionally almost completely extirpated a species that is about the size of an average German shepherd. And I'm talking about gray wolves uh, via a coordinated ex extirpation initiative. I would argue that if uh, lions were resident in North America, they would have been uh, extinct a long time ago. And yet we have very judgment-laden perspectives about trying to uh, conserve those populations where they exist today. And oftentimes that, that generates some very difficult dialogues that occur when considering the perspectives of local people. So I think broadly what the students understood at the end of the course is that local people are trying to survive just as local people are doing the same thing in North America. They're faced with some significant costs associated with living next to these places, just as are uh, people in North America where wolves spill out of national parks and, and take cattle and depredate with, with some frequency. And that um, it's an essential human right for people to be involved in the process of managing those populations. And so the issues that, that arise were local people in the global south actually being afforded with agency to be active participants in the process of co-management along with uh, with state and federal agencies. So it sounds like in large part, these students are, you know, kind of um, graduating from this course with a much more nuanced and complete understanding of, you know, sort of the complexities of these issues. Yes. The other thing that we found was that it changed their perspectives on how they want to generate impact in their own careers. And so several students, um, expressed in their reflection documents that they were now thinking about different organizations that they might want to work with, different ways in which they might want to drive uh, corporate uh, companies, for instance, to become more sustainable and more conservation focused. We've had uh, exponential growth, beyond exponential growth in ESG investing, right, which refers to environmental, social, and governance. Uh, the students recognize that conservation and sustainability have that critical environmental, social, and governance dimensions to them, and that these fields of conservation and sustainability are areas where corporates need to be investing their practices. And so that was a really interesting thing. Even where students went to large pharmaceutical companies, they were continuing to connect with us and and uh, and say the way in which they were leveraging the messages of the of. Uh, of the information that they garnered from the course within their own employment sectors. That's that's fascinating. So you you can expect a reach that kind of extends beyond what would be the traditional, you know, academic conservation biology pipeline. Completely. And it was one where the interdisciplinarity was really important. So pulling students from packaging and pulling students from art and art history and from fisheries and wildlife and several of these other disciplines it was very important that we intentionally had a thoughtful recruitment strategy and enrollment uh, pathway that enabled students from these diverse backgrounds to come together 
And the students were sharing information and learning from each other. So, you know, just as much as the packaging students didn't have much of an understanding of the principles of conservation biology, the fisheries students had no understanding of the principles of supply chain distribution. And so, so they're dynamically sharing this content as they're working on their joint uh, team activities, again, trying to uh, progress these very consequential, uh, in, in, you know, in reality, these very consequential pieces of work that they were doing in, in tandem with local community members. Oh, that's very exciting. Um, I'm wondering now, uh, last question, what's next for this work? You know, uh, you've obviously uh, moved to England, so you're a little bit further away from uh, Michigan. What's going on? What can we expect from either Snares to Wares um, or more courses like this? What's upcoming? Yeah, well, there's some really exciting things that we're working on now. Um, so we're working to actually develop a, an education and training facility uh, adjacent to Murchison Falls National Park, which we're calling ICON, which stands for Innovation for Conservation so that we actually have a formal educational institution built into the fabric of the local communities where students from the United States or from the United Kingdom can come on study abroad, but so can students from Makerere University in Uganda come on study away experiences. And what we're seeking to do within that facility is to replicate the same model of instruction, but have it be one where the students have an option not only for distance learning from their, their core campuses, but also immersive training. And the really important point here, James, is the one that you brought up earlier about oftentimes it takes students from a very privileged position to be able to go on study abroad or study away experiences when they're undergraduates. And so we've actually been communicating with several donors about deferring those costs to make it open and available to students from all, all types of backgrounds and, and diverse perspectives. Oh, that's really great. And it gives us a lot to uh, stay tuned for in the future. Uh, Dr. Montgomery, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.